host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me on today's episode is my buddy Shang Peng. Shang, what's going on, man? Oh, pretty good, pretty good. Yeah, I just got into uh, Montreal yesterday, uh, thinking about the bagels and the smoked meat. I'm going to get some today after morning skate. Oh, nice. La Belle Provence. Have you had, uh, are you going to get some poutine as well? Uh, I actually had it last night. Nice. <laughs> so, there hitting all go. the cliches. There you go. You're a hockey journalist pro. You, you've been on the road a few times. You know what you're doing. <laughs> um, all right, man. Well, this is this is exciting. We're going to do a, uh, a San Jose Sharks deep dive uh, through the lens, especially of the individual season Eric Carlson's having, because I think it's something that a lot of fans, even beyond Sharks fans, have been captivated by so far because it's been such a thrilling experience to see him putting up the point totals that we've kind of become accustomed to during his prime and kind of looking like that vintage version of himself so far this season. So I'm excited to just unpack that performance with you and and deep dive kind of how he's been able to do it, what he's been doing, because you've been covering this team as, as closely as anyone so far this season. And I don't know, I'm kind of curious for your thoughts on, on whether it's overblown how much he looks like his prime self, or, because, you know, I think last year he didn't have the point totals, but if you look at a lot of the underlying metrics, they were not too far off from the way he's driving offense so far this season. The puck was just going into the net less frequently for himself and his teammates, but he clearly, I feel like to me, to my eye at least, looks like his old old self again. Yeah, no, I don't think it's uh, overblown at all. Uh, Eric's been terrific this year, though I will add, and you mentioned it, that last year he actually was very, very good too, especially in the beginning of the season. Uh, before he had his forearm surgery in January, he had 26 points in the first 33 games of the season. So again, not quite what he's doing right now, but those are pretty good. Those are Eric Carlson-like numbers too. Yep. And when he came back though from his surgery, I think that the team was far out of the playoffs. You know, I think his engagement can wax and wane with what the team is is and so i think that's part of what happened at the end there but he was quite good last year too yeah i mean yeah a lot of the i I had my my pal jay fresh on last week and he made this point of how a lot of the offensive metrics last year if you look at them what they were generating in terms of shots chances expected goals were pretty in line with so far this season now 12 percent of the team's shots are are going in when he's on the ice and i think 15 or 16 percent of his own shots are going in so that'll certainly make someone look better and pad the point totals. But yep. I mean, listen, he's currently on an 82 game pace of 38 goals and 72 assists. He is 25 on five points are tied for the league lead with Sidney Crosby. It's remarkable what he's doing. I think you made a great note of this in a recent sort of piece you wrote about how you watch Eric Carlson and how analytics have helped you appreciate kind of what he's doing. I think what you're seeing that looks much more like primary Carlson is how aggressively involved he is in the offensive zone, where especially from his own shot attempts, which isn't something necessarily that we talk about glowingly for defensemen, because for most defensemen, it's kind of a suboptimal point shot. You generally want to get it to your forwards deeper in the zone. Carlson himself has been so involved in terms of his own shot volume, and that looks much more like the prime version of himself after a few sort of down years the past couple of years. Yeah, absolutely. I think with Eric too, you know, it's uh, Eric is smart in terms of a lot of his shots are as counted as shot attempts or shot passes. And and you can see that, you know, he's often looking for that stick that's kind of there in front of the net, looking for that deflection. And so I think that's what kind of pads the totals too. And it's a good mark of just sort of his, uh, sort of his uh, dominance. Yeah. Well, there was an interesting nugget that I found where in his past 15 games this season, he's top 10 plus shots in five of those and if you look back over the past three years prior to this one he had done it seven times in his previous 158 games so i think for him it does show a bit of a it's a bit of a barometer for kind of how often he has the puck on a stick in the offensive zone how involved he is in creating for this team and if you kind of segment it down into even specific shot types whether it's high danger chances rush shots rebounds created on natural statric he's amongst the top five amongst all defensemen for this team. I'm kind of curious for your take on the interplay over the years between him and Brent Burns and having two sort of alphas who like to have the puck on their stick on the same team. Now, you know, they didn't necessarily play much together at five on five, but I've seen that pointed to a lot as a reason for, for this uptick in production for Carlson. Do you think there's any merit to that? Or do you think it's, it's, it's totally unrelated because like the usage isn't that far off from where it was last year for him. Yeah, no, I think that narrative is a little overblown. I mean, there's some truth to it, but okay, so we talk about 2018-19, right? And um, 
Brent Burns was a Norris finalist that year. Uh, in a December-January stretch for Eric Carlson, when he was healthy, he was one of the best defensemen in the league. We talk about the shot volume in 2018-19 for uh, Carlson, which was as high in 2018-19 as it is now. And so I think that they both could coexist together. Um, but I think uh, there are some subtleties where, yes, I think Carlson uh, has flourished without Burns. I think uh, – number one on a power play uh, before on the power play, they would have to split, you know, split time because they didn't mm -hmm. necessarily, one thing is they never really meshed too well on a power play together. You know, I think when the sharks traded for Carlson, it seemed like, Oh yeah, you can use uh Brent Burns uh, in his shot at one timer. Um, you know, they try to use uh Brent Burns in the Ovechkin kind of role, but I don't know if Brent Burns ever found comfort in kind of sliding up and down, uh, up and down the, 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 the left side, like Ovechkin has. And so, that never quite, quite worked. And so basically what would happen is they would usually split power play units. But the Sharks in 2018-19, their second power play unit was Evander Kane, Gustav Nyquist, Joel Thornton, uh, still a very good Joel Thornton back then. Mm -hmm. Whereas when we get into the later, you know, the, the last couple of years with the Sharks, the second power play units were nowhere as talented. You know, uh, the Sharks were very, very top heavy, obviously, the last couple of years. And so whoever got to play with the top power play unit obviously was playing with clearly you know high more skilled players and so this year though there's no such kind of uh, a problem with that you know eric carlson is a clear pp1 there's no switching back and forth between burns you know who's fresher who's not you know that sort of thing right uh burns i'm sorry carlson gets all the shifts with uh the the, the top power play unit also too carlson gets all the sort of the priority offensive shifts uh you know be it end of the game that sort of thing right now uh they would usually kind of uh put them together at five one five uh, you know at the, at the end of periods or whatnot the last couple of years but again you know it all revolves around carlson and so there are some ways that yes i think that uh carl that carlson uh you know that carlson is excelling being sort of the key alpha dog but again let's remember the 2018-19 uh, they were both together and they were both terrific that year yeah yeah it's about the situation as much as anything yeah i mean it's interesting i i, I did notice that you know, his power play usage is relatively similar to what it was last year for Carlson, but he's being used significantly more at 5-1-5 where he's playing over 20 minutes a night there now. And he's up to 25-15 across all situations, which is the most he's played since actually his last Senator season. He's never played this much for the Sharks. So I think there is an, an element of that as well. It's a, it's a slightly concerning to me for a player who has as many miles and injury history as he does. And he's what, 32 now that they're leaning on him to this degree. But I mean, he certainly so far through the first 25 games or so hasn't shown any, any signs of it being too much of a workload for him to handle. Well, yeah, it's very, very, very concerning, especially <laughs> with uh, Eric's injury history. But you know, who is their 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 second option on 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 a power play on in offensive situations? You know, right, right. now it's you know Mario Ferraro, who is you know I think uh, playing over his head in an area. It should be maybe Ryan Merkley, but Ryan Merkley can't play himself out of the AHL. And so in the past, it would have been Brent Burns, of course, but of course, Burns is is gone. You know, I wanted to underscore that point about the power play units, too, though, that, you know, look at the, the Sharks, you know, the pop, top power play unit right now is Carlson with Hurdle, Couture, Meyer, um, uh, Barabanov. You know, it's a pretty good uh, PP1, but then our PP2 is... Cunin, Bonino, LeBanc. Um, it's a yes. it's it's it's, yeah. it's a drop off. So to, to put it kindly, yes, yeah. I think I think you listing those names said it all, Shang. I don't think we needed to uh, <laughs> to describe the difference. Yeah, I mean, you know, another slightly amazing stat for Carlson that's kind of discouraging for the Sharks, I'd say, as a whole. And that's that's a, sort of the overarching theme of a lot of this is they have fifty five on five goals so far this year as a team. He's been on the ice, or he has a point on 20 of them. He's been on the ice for 33 of them. They're up 33 to 28 with him. They're down 37, 17 without him. And the most amazing stat of all for me is they have 71 all situations goals as a team so far this year. And he's been on the ice for 50 of them. Now you mentioned how they're using him in situationally, especially in all of those higher leverage scoring opportunities. So, you know, of course that's baked into it as well. But I mean, it's still mind boggling to think about the fact that this Sharks team in 860 all situations minutes without Eric Carlson this season has managed to kind of cobble together 18 total goals scored. I mean, that's a, that's a mind boggling stat to me. 
<laughs> yeah, no, it sure is. And so, I mean, I would say that the, the Sharks are definitely, you know, going back to the Carlson Burns thing, the way weaker uh, without Burns. I mean, yes, you know, Carlson, again, you know, it, you know, is benefiting a little bit from sort of the, the priority he gets, you know, without Burns around. But the Sharks really need a kind of a all around number two defender. Mm-hmm. And they traded that, that, that sort of that number two defender away in Burns. Burns, you know, wanted to go to Carolina, of course. They would have kept Burns that Burns wanted to stay. And so I think that uh, I think the team is definitely the the weaker for it, even if Carlson's like point totals may be a little less gaudy without Burns around, but the team would be better if uh, they were both still here and both playing at a high level. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's stick with, let's stick with Carlson. Um, so I, I was mentioning kind of to my eye, how this is the best he's looked in a long time. You know, I think where that extra, it feels like he has an extra jump in his step so far this season, at least at the start of the year. I'm not sure how much of that was, you know, him just finally being healthy, how much of it was having a good off season of training and just kind of actually being in, in really good shape physically heading into the season. But for me, where it's really manifested is seeing how on the breakout he's back to all of a sudden being that kind of cheat code in transition, right? Where the F1 attacks him on the forecheck and he's able to beat that guy on the breakout and then push the puck up the ice and actually enter the offensive zone himself. And you can see that I think other teams are acknowledging that he's kind of back to where he was because they're giving him that respect of you see him enter the zone and the defenders just back off immediately because they're actually worried about him beating them either out wide or through the middle with his speed, which he's done a couple of times so far this season when they've kind of not sagged off. And so that's all of a sudden making life so much easier for all of his teammates where, you know, that's affording them extra room. All of a sudden he can come into the zone, pass it off. And then someone has this kind of new, newfound breathing room to make a play themselves. So for me, where I've really noticed that physical difference for him is in that transition element and in pushing defenders back. And I think the rest of the league has noticed as well, based on the way they're treating him. Yeah. Yeah. I think we could start to see it last year too. You know, last mm-hmm. year uh, uh, before opening night, uh, Eric Carlson said, you know, we talked to him, I think before the morning skate, he said that I still think I'm one of the best players in the world. You know, that, that quote by Carlson, you know, made headlines a lot of uh, uh, Twitter. Uh, <laughs> You'll never lot, believe it, but the hockey world didn't like it. Yeah, a lot of yeah. a lot of memes, uh, a lot of a lot of jokes, you know, and we, you know, honestly, from what we had seen the previous two seasons, you know, 2020, 21, the COVID season, he had 22 points in 52 games. He actually was pretty healthy that year, but he was, you know, that's the that's the worst that I've seen uh, from an on a night to night basis from Eric Carlson. And I do think that that year, you know, they started uh, the see the Sharks started the season uh, in Scottsdale, 45 days in Scottsdale, I think, because San Jose, Santa Clara County wouldn't let the Sharks practice or play uh, in San Jose because of because of COVID mm-hmm. uh, was I think it was, you know, uh, you know, I, I, it sounds like I'm making excuses for him. But I think it was tough for him. It was tough for the Sharks you know, all, all the players. And so I, I think that going into 2021, 22, he, he had a kind of a regular summer of training. And I think last season, just for example, just some of the sport logic stats, you know, like I think he had uh, about four times the zone uh, controlled zone exits at five on five, uh, four times more than any other defenseman on the Sharks, including Burns. Mm. And, you know, he was already kind of showing that that ability to kind of skate and escape and uh, and and lead and lead a rush. And that's carried over into this season uh, where, again, yeah, you do definitely see that kind of respect. I think people are sort of aware of, of Carlson's just how important he is to the Sharks and also, too, just what he can do to you if you kind of overcommit to him on a forecheck. Yeah, there was. I, I mean, this was on a on a power play, I should say. So they were already an advantage. But there was a recent game I remember very vividly in Seattle, I believe, where he kind of skated it into the zone on an entry, and the defenders, um, you know, they didn't necessarily sag back. They were sort of caught in no man's land where they didn't really know what to do, or maybe they didn't even realize that it was Carlson rushing the puck up the ice, and so they froze for a second there. And he noticed that and he capitalized and he pounced and he just kind of split the middle and basically went in all alone. And it was a really interesting play because he almost like he got it's he seemed caught off guard himself because he skated it in and he he expected to stop and pass it off to someone. But then he noticed that they were kind of off balance and he just went and attacked and and that explosion through the middle. I was like, wow, that 
that was that was very impressive and that was something that i i have to admit i personally didn't see much of last year but um mm-hmm. it's really cool to see him kind of doing that all over again and, and actually kind of you know striking the fear of being embarrassed in that fashion the way he used to right like it's they, they, like when people talk about that sort of that swagger or, or whatever you want to identify it as i think it is there because when i think of eric carlson in ottawa during his prime like he played with that with that confidence right where he wanted to to try and embarrass you and put you on an end one highlight reel right and and the past couple of years in san jose he's he's been successful and effective but i think it's been much more sort of through craftiness and guile and picking his spots as opposed to just what he's doing now. And so for me, it, it, regardless of the results, it's just kind of cool to see that, that, that process back there for him again. Yeah. Uh, actually the, the last game, the Sharks played against Vancouver, I think uh, actually on the NHL Twitter, they highlighted, even though it didn't even lead to any, uh, right. Yeah. Uh, the shot uh, off goal. The, yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. The uh, I think it was Sheldon uh, Sheldon Dries that uh, was made to look to fool. Sheldon Dries uh, tried to uh, try to attack Carlson at the point, and and Carlson just basically Harlem Globe Globetrotters his way through him, and then uh, created you know basically off of that. You know, we talk about. I wrote an article a few uh, 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 a few games ago about just uh, Carlson and analytics and how uh, Carlson kind of you know. Uh, got me into watching the game more carefully mm-hmm. and you you talk about why is carlson so you know his shot attempts his his uh his analytics why are they always so strong right you look at a play like that what he did to drives there he basically created space that led to four i think four shots by the sharks there and that's off of one move at the top that you know you know embarrassed <laughs> yeah embarrassed embarrassed drives but basically left him in the dust and and, and created an outnumbered situation and just you know Carlson and the Sharks started pounding shots on Vancouver uh, uh, right there and just uh, yeah that, that that was a fun sequence to watch in person well it's always funny because when he does stuff like that he did it earlier in the year at Dallas as well where he kind of put it through the legs of Tyler Sagan and then another defender I believe and created space for himself in the offensive zone and you always get a certain segment of fans that push back on that and are like, oh, well, that's a very risky play because if he turns it over, he's the last man back and that's going to be a breakaway for the other team, right? And right. I mean, that's obviously such a such a poor way to think about it because it's like, oh, what's the worst thing that can happen here as opposed to a highly skilled creative player doing what he does best and what makes him so special. But it's, it, it, I think it's it, it hits the nail on the head there where, yeah, that confidence that he's playing with in terms of, acknowledging the risk and still doing it anyways and pulling it off is what makes him Eric Carlson. And so seeing him doing that is a highly rewarding viewing experience. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. So he's, he's definitely playing the game faster than, than everybody else uh, right now. And I think, you know, if we compare it to, to, to the last few years, especially 2021, 2019, 20, um, just, uh, you know, he would try the same kind of plays. You know, he's always had the same kind of mentality, confidence and swagger, even in those years where uh, he wasn't as good as he is uh, this year. I mean, again, you know, I, I talked about what he said before opening night last year, you know, like, you know, that that's that's a confident Man, I don't think Eric Carlson is ever lacking for <laughs> for swagger. But uh, those kind of plays, though, uh, would not you know he 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 may not be able to execute those plays as regularly. He might actually execute those plays, those high high end plays, maybe six seven times out of ten uh, in in those years that he maybe struggled a little bit, right? And so those three times that he doesn't three times out of ten that he doesn't succeed, then it goes back the other way. It's an ugly chance, et cetera, et cetera. And no one is saying that Eric Carlson this year is a perfect player you know we're always talking about overall impact of a player not just you know taking like uh, one shift at a time where he makes a mistake or one shift where he makes a great play but you know this year though i would say that the overall impact he tries things like that you know maybe now we're closer to like nine out of ten times it's working yeah yeah no i i think certainly i think where else and and that's a great point i want to i want to build off of that in a second here but one final point on kind of his explosiveness that i've noticed in the offensive zone and that piece you referenced there yourself that you wrote up, you had a couple interesting stats that I thought in there from sport logic. One was that he's leading the sharks team with 2.3 passes to the slot per game so far this season. And two was that he's the second 
uh, amongst defensemen in the league at 4.8 offense generating plays per game at five on five, which are plays leading to scoring chances. And where you see that explosiveness in the offensive zone is his kind of ability to make someone miss, right? There was a play you highlighted um, where he kind of, uh, I forget, I think it was maybe against Florida or someone recently where he gets the puck along the wall or it was against Ottawa, actually. It was, it was a puck against the wall and he makes the defender coming at a miss. He slides down the wall and he buys himself time and space and then gets the puck into the slot for a chance for Jonah Gadjevich to tap it in. And it didn't yep. result in a goal, but you see stuff like that. His ability to not only move down the wall, but move into the middle of the ice to improve his angle that makes him so good. And he's been doing that so much more often this season. And that's a big reason why he's creating such an offensive impact for this team, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that part of it too is, you know, uh, David Quinn uh, really wants the the Sharks defensemen to, to kind of attack a forward in that kind of way. And of course, it's incumbent on the Sharks forwards if there is a mistake for the Sharks forwards to cover Carlson there. You know, like uh, a lot of fans will, you know, kind of howl, like, what is Carlson doing attacking down there? He's doing what he's good at. And so it's incumbent on his teammates there to cover for him. If there is a two-on-one to result from that, a lot of times it's because, frankly, it's because the forward did not cover for Carlson there. Yeah, well, uh, that that is the double-edged sword here, right? I think you also noted in that piece where uh, they've made this shift under David Quinn to playing more zone defense versus man-to-man previously. And they've been better suited for it, especially in these in-zone defending situations. Now, where you're seeing them really struggle is how much they're conceding in the rush where I know ClearSight Analytics has them as the 32nd ranked team in terms of giving up rush chances per game. Mm. And so you're right. Like it takes a team effort. You see when Colorado does it, for example, when Kale McCarr goes behind the net in the offensive zone to try to create something with his skating, Nathan McKinnon pops up to the middle of the ice and protects the point in case they turn it over. He can at least be back as kind of the last line of defense. And they're not, they don't have five skaters below the dots basically. And it's tough because you acquire full team buy. And I think you acquire playing together a long time to know each other's habits and to kind of pick up on when Carlson's going to do that. And I think there's been times where, it has kind of come back to hurt them. Um, and certainly, I mean, you look at, you know, 32nd ranked in terms of rush chances against that's, that's not ideal. And it's putting a lot of strain on, on their goalies as well. So you, you kind of take the good with the bad there, but that's a great point you make there because it hasn't necessarily been all roses either. It's kind of been the, the full experience so far. Yeah, I mean they are seventeen and thirteen and four for a reason. So <laughs> yes, yes, that's true. <laughs> and they have that's the worst true. save percentage in the league right now too. So right now, you know, uh, we're go- we're going back to the the Martin Jones days. So <laughs> yeah, although I will say, I mean, yeah, they're so yeah, the thirty second in both five on five and all, all situations save percentage. Um, you know, James Ryber in particular, who's hurt right now, has a nine oh three. I think the public models still have him with a net positive goal save yeah. above expected, which he does. For a goalie with a 903 save percentage is not something you see very often. And honestly, in my opinion, I haven't looked at the private models for this. I think that might be underselling it too, because I think the the quality of the rush chances they're giving up in some of these sequences is probably not being properly accounted for on like natural statric or evolving hockey, where when they're in these slow it down defensive zone sequences, they're doing a really good job of protecting the slot, right? So whether giving up mm-hmm. shots from a location perspective, it, gen- it it kind of comes across for the model as, oh, well, you know, that was good defense. They didn't give up much. But then the one rush chance they give up when one of these offensive zone sequences gets blown up is so detrimental and so hard to save for their goalies that I feel like it's almost not being properly accounted for how how tough of a defensive environment it is for them. Yeah, yeah. And I think we can't say, I mean, I, I brought up Martin Jones in sort of a pejorative sense, but mm-hmm. in, in fairness to Martin, you know, look at what what he's doing in uh, Seattle now. You know, goaltending is always kind of hard to predict, and the Sharks have been putting their goaltenders in bad environments since, uh, well, since 2019-20, really. And so any goalie that's performed uh, a little, a bit above average, really, you know, uh, well, I, it's, it's a bit of a joke. And I'm not saying that James Reimer should be in a Vesna consideration, but definitely, though, uh, to, you know, I think Aaron Dell had a decent season in 2019-22, and Reimer had a pretty good season last year, too. Like, if you're able to get this Sharks team and, you know, uh, and and have a, have a save percentage over 90% as a Sharks goalie, that's actually an achievement. 
Yeah, Natural Statric has them as giving up the ninth fewest high danger chances against yep. and the seventeenth fewest expected goals against. That that doesn't really seem right to me. I think they've been a bit worse defensively than that. Well, yeah, we're talking about now, you know, the in-zone defending, which mm-hmm. is better this year. And, right. you know, if we talk about in-zone defending, you know, what uh, what have the Sharks been actually really good at the last three, four years? It's actually the PK. Mm-hmm. I think if, if you do a cumulative PK, uh, they're, I think they're first, they're, they're tops in the league right now. Last year, they were second. If you did a, a cumulative uh, a penalty kill from 2019-20, uh, I think they would be the best in the league or maybe second best in the league to Carolina or Boston. They're, they're up there, right? And so that kind of doesn't make sense, of course. Like, how can a team that is so bad defensively at five on five be so good on the pk but you think about what you're doing on the pk and it's a lot of that in zone defending sort of that you know half ice defending or in in zone you know strictly and yes yeah the sharks the sharks are are are, are showing that they're that they're good at it you know and i think maybe that's why the zone defense works for them too because it kind of replicates i think in some way some of the some of the the what you do on a pk whereas when they're on the move when they make these mistakes right and they do have uh you know players high risk players at, at times in carlson burns over the years right um then it, it can get a little uh, hairy and ugly because then they can't get set defensively yeah yeah it can although i will say if you're going to lose games, I much prefer the style they're playing now and how aggressive <laughs> it can be to the alternative. Right. And I think imagine for you yeah, as no, well, covering all these games. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, there's going to be some, some moments where you want to pull your hair out certainly, but I think watching Carlson just attack at every opportunity and sprint up the ice and make plays up the ice, even if it, if it costs them sometimes defensively, you know, what? whatever, I guess maybe it's easy for me to say here from the outside as just someone who's looking for entertainment value, but that's honestly the way I view the sharks this season no i i think i think i think you're right i mean look it's it's really about like we talk about like even though the record isn't isn't great for the sharks what is the sharks best chance to win right and their best chance to win i think is to lean on eric carlson and his strengths and so then that becomes and not to blame everybody else but then it becomes incumbent on the rest of the team to try to cover up the strengths and right now i would say that a lot of it is 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 the goaltending you know reimer has played well overall this season but before he got hurt he had a couple of rough games there where, you know, uh, I think goals that he would want back, you know, sort of the 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 long shots have nothing to do with with rush chances or whatever. And uh, Kakinen, uh, who they, you know, they they put a lot of hopes on. Uh, uh, they, you know, they traded Jake Middleton for him last trade deadline. They gave uh, him a two year deal in the offseason. And I think they were hoping that he would sort of become like that that one A goalie for for San Jose. And he has not been very good this year. And this is not. This is not just the environment. Yes, you know, it would help if the Sharks did this or that for him, you know. But, uh, you know, there's also been a lot of kind of long shots, soft goals, that sort of thing, sort of the the backbreaking goals that he's given up. And so um, I think that if, if they can get you know, I, th- I think I think that they have they have created an environment in terms of just their in zone defending that should get them should net them league averages goaltending. That, that's my opinion for this year. You know, I think Martin Jones had to deal with the worst in-zone defense and a lot of things worse in <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, some of those bad years. But I think the, the last uh, couple of years, really, I think Bob Bugner and David Quinn this year uh, have have done a reasonable job of creating at least a league average-ish environment for, for these guys. Yeah, well, I remember after the first, what was it, five or six games where they had like eight goals total scored in them, and it looked, it was like, wow, this is going to be a very, very long year. So at the very least, seeing what they've been able to do offensively has uh, has been a nice, pleasant surprise. Shang, uh, we're yeah. going to take a quick break here, and then when we come back, we're going to keep talking about a variety of Sharks topics. So looking forward to that. Um, we'll be back here in a minute. You're listening to the Hockey PDO Cast on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Back here on the Hockey PDO cast with my guest Shen Peng today. Shang, we've talked a lot about Eric Carlson. We've talked about the changes under David Quinn. We've talked about the defensive system and all that. I think it's about it's long past time we talk about Timo Meyer here, who somehow I don't <laughs> think we've mentioned yet. And I think that's a, a topic of interest for a lot of fans. And he himself is having a ridiculous season so far, right? Especially of late, his performance. He's on pace for 41 goals, 10 of his eight assists are of the primary variety. 
his shot volume, we were mentioning what Carlson's doing, is just obscene. He leads the league with 120 shots on goal, which is on pace for 410. He has 214 shot attempts, which is a 730 shot attempt pace, which also leads the league. <laughs> and I believe only Chris Kreider, Brady Kachuk, Zach Hyman, and John Tavares, four very traditional kind of net front guys, have more high danger shot attempts than him so far, or high danger chances. And he gets them in a much more diverse variety of ways than those guys do. He also, a nice little net positive for them so far this year, considering how, you know, pretty solid their power play, especially top unit has been. He's drawn 11 penalties. He's only taken two, which has been a nice yeah. little addition to his game as well. So you look at all of that and he is having himself one heck of a season so far. Yeah. You know, I think he's still massively uh, underrated uh, nationally. Um, part of it, you know, due to his own, you know, he's, uh, you know, Timo, you know, 2018, 19, he broke out. He had 30 goals. Everyone assumed that next year, you know, logical step, he would, uh, you know, take over for, you know, Joe Pavelski left that summer, uh, you know, Joe Thornton the next year would, would, uh, would, would leave, you know, but basically that Timo Meyer would sort of, you know, take the torch from these guys and, and, uh, be the face of the sharks. And he didn't do it in 2019, 20, he didn't do it in 2021. It was awful really that that season um and so really like he was kind of at a crossroads you know i think that summer uh after the 2021 season i think fans would have traded him you know for you know for a second round draft pick you know get mm -hmm. just get the contract off the books or whatever you know and uh he came back last season though um and you know reminded us of, of uh, just how good he can be and he's done that again this year and so anyway though on the national side though you know like uh, I, 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 you know, it's a, it's a big, big talk in, 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 uh, in, in, uh, Sharks Nation or Sharks Line. Uh, you know, uh, Daily Faceoff had their, you know, their, their sort of their monthly trade targets article, mm -hmm. and uh, Meyer was, uh, I think sixth on that list, and they talked about how, you know, Meyer would, 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 uh, has a lot less value than Alex DeBrinket. What? And, and you know, fans were howling about that, and yeah, I, I, you know, I haven't written about it yet, but. Uh, I think Meyer is a better player than the Brinkett. Now the Brinkett has more consistency. So again, that's on Meyer for a couple of those lost seasons there. Right. But you see sort of just, you know, if you watch team on a night to night basis, but you, again, you, you mentioned some of the stats that just stand out, just how much of the shot share he commands for the sharks. Basically, you know, I mean, if you use like that NBA term, right. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Timo Meyer is a player that can create his own shot at will. That is a real skill. And not, I don't think you can say that about every, you know, a lot of even the top fours in the league, their ability to kind of create their own shot. Oh, yeah. Especially like legitimate chances, too, right? He's consistently yep. been one of those players that's kind of living around that high danger area and, and leads the league in, in that category. Yeah. I mean, he, that's a, I, I didn't even know that that statement was made on that list. That's preposterous. He is, uh, his value <laughs> is, is significant. Now, you know, we can talk more here in a bit about what a trade would look like and kind of what that would command. I think, you know, not that this is, differentiates him from Debrinkat because he's just in a similar spot, but I imagine whatever team would be paying a premium for him would require some sort of insurance that it would come with a long-term deal. But I, I have one more stat here for you to show the value of Meyer. And and let's loop in his his running mate, Tomas Hurdle, in this as well. So mm -hmm. since the start of last year at 515, the Sharks have played 900 five on five minutes with Tomas Hurdle and Timo Meyer on the ice. They're up 59 to 40. So plus 19 in those minutes in 3000 five on five minutes without the two of them on the ice, they're down 151 to 88, which is wow. just, yeah, <laughs> it, <laughs> it is a wild. So, um, you know, to say that they are the sharks, uh, Carlson has been great this season, of course, as, as we talked about over the first half of the show, but they offensively, especially up front, are the Sharks, right? And so whenever you get into this conversation of what are they going to do with him, what are they going to trade him for, all this stuff, I guess you you really have to reconcile that if you do trade him, assuming it's going to be purely for futures, like that is going to create such a tremendous hole. And that might not matter because you, you know, even with him playing so well so well so far this season, there's seven, thirteen, and four. So it's not like it's gotten them that far necessarily. But I think it's important to kind of contextualize how important of a of a you know mainstay he's been for this team this past two seasons 
Yeah, and you know, I need to be careful. You know, like when you watch one team uh, every night, you get into an echo chamber, right? And and you know, the Meyer has been so dominant. That, hey, maybe it's because the Sharks are, as you noted, are not very good. Uh, and, and so they need to give them, you know, uh, that they need them to take over that shot share, that sort of thing, right? But the last couple of years, I noticed with Timo that any line you put him on has immediately become the Sharks' best offensive line. You know, last year we started the season with Logan Couture and Jonathan Dolan, and, um, you know, that that was through the first month, the, the, the Sharks' uh, best line. You know, Jonathan Dolan, people were talking about him being a Calder candidate. And uh, once they took Timo off that line, you know, both Logan Couture's numbers and Jonathan Dolan's numbers fell. In Couture's defense, you know, uh, basically, if you take if you take Meyer away from him, the Sharks have a lot of sort of suboptimal offensive wingers to put, you know, to, to place with with uh, with a Couture. But anyway, though, um, Meyer's the kind of guy that I, I, I believe. And again, this is the echo chamber part. Maybe I'll be proven wrong if you put him on a different team. But you put him on whatever line you put him on, you give him a, a semi-competent center, and that's going to be a, a legit top six scoring line. And I, again, that's not something that I think you can say about a lot of players in this league. It's just sort of the variety of skills that Timo has in terms of just carrying the puck up from one end to the other and creating space. Uh, you know, obviously, when he's creating a shot for himself, and just like Eric Carlson, he's not just creating space uh for himself uh if the uh, if the defense is focused on Timo Meyer that creates space for everybody else and so again you know there aren't a lot of players that again you put them on 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 a line then you have an instant you know kind of an instant offense line and so I'm actually curious to see I obviously like watching Timo and I like dealing with Timo so I would love for him to stay with on the Sharks but I would be curious to see though if he has that same kind of effect you know in another city yeah, I mean, I, I I don't view his like the the shot workload or how big of a share he accounts for as a negative in terms of like oh he's hogging the puck or or this makes his team worse right because not only is he scoring a lot of goals but I believe also Natural Statric has him like leading the league in rebounds created as well so far mm-hmm. this season and so being able to get the shots from where he does leads to additional opportunities for others that are just aren't good enough or aren't capable to create those chances for themselves and so i'm totally with you i think he has such a malleable skill set we've seen him be able to thrive in a number of different situations in terms of playing style and and teammates he plays with and their own tendencies that if you want to get him on a more kind of grinded out line where you get the puck down low and cycle it up and have him pop into the slot for those looks i think he can thrive in that if you want to play a bit more of an up-tempo north south style with him carrying the puck up the ice he can do that as well and i think that's so valuable for a player where you can insert him and he can do those he can regardless of his situation he doesn't necessarily need to be put in a position to succeed because he's going to thrive no matter what i think that is a rare quality and i think i don't think you should be underselling how valuable that is like I, i get what you're saying from the perspective of you see him every night so maybe you just appreciate him more but i watch the entire league and i can tell you for a fact that 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 skill set is pretty hard to come by Oh, that's uh, yeah, that that's that's good to hear in that in that way. Uh, yeah, no, it's been one of the I guess the underrated I guess uh, pleasures of being a Sharks beat writer the last couple of years to kind of see his maturation. And we've seen the Sharks record the last couple of years. It's it's not that pleasurable <laughs> to, to 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 watch this team on a night to night basis overall. Let's be honest. But uh, you know, Timo, you know, going into again last year, he's coming off a very disappointing twenty twenty one. People, you know, really had no idea what to make of him. Like, you know, was he a legit top six player? Was he kind of a bust, you know, guy that just had one great season and just coasting off of that or whatever, right? And early in the season, though, they figured out how good he was and just how, you know, like uh, just what, you know, just sort of uh, the the step he had taken, you know, Bob Booger and his staff, right? And I wrote about this last year. Um, when you think about the Sharks and their offense, you know, we talked a lot about Brett Burns, right? And he, you know, cast such a large shadow uh, over the Sharks, uh, you know, from, you know, the the time from 2015-16 on, basically. Mm-hmm. In the Pete DeBoer era, Brent Burns, you know, look at just shot share, just uh, how, mu- how many power play shot attempts he would take of the offense, how many uh, shot attempts that he would take five on five, right? Uh, the You know, he was putting up numbers, you know, league- leading in terms of shot share, and especially for a defenseman, that's crazy. And so basically in the Pete DeBoer era, Brent, you know, to say that Brent Burns was the fulcrum, of the Sharks' offense is not an exaggeration because he was, you know, everything ran through Burns basically, and 
it, it, it flourished, you know, flourished under Pete DeBoer. You know, it was a Stanley Cup final appearance. Uh, there was a Western Conference finals appearance on top of that. Uh, Brent Burns was a Norris finalist, I think, three times. Well, one at once and a finalist, I think, two other times uh, in, in, in the DeBoer era. So anyway, uh, they fired DeBoer, you know, Burns gets older, uh, that happens, right? And so what happened? So last year, Meyer basically becomes the same fulcrum of the Sharks offense that mm-hmm. Burns was. And you look at the same, the, the shot attempt share at, on the power play, the shot attempt share at 5-1-5, they match what, what, what Burns was doing in, in the DeBoer era. And so that's an intentional thing. That's, I think, at, at a point where Bob Bugner and his staff realized just what they had with Timo Meyer. And he wasn't giving that, you know, to them in the previous years. But last year, they saw early on that, you know, this 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 is a guy that we can run our basically our entire offense around whenever he's on the ice. And that's 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 what they did last year. And this year, you know, with Carlson's kind of reemergence or emergence again or whatever, right? It's you know made for really a devastating kind of one-two combo um, uh, for the Sharks. It has, and I guess the natural sort of segue or question off of this then is what do you do with him right because (laughs) he turns 27 before the start of next season i think when he took that four-year 24 million dollar deal in the summer of 2019 that you alluded to which by the way was received with uh much to the chagrin of a lot of people in the league who were upset that that deal happened at the time the rationale i think for him was listen you take a bit less now help this yeah. Sharks team that was just coming off of a Western Conference bid, keep most of their players together and try to be competitive for the next couple of years. Now, that obviously hasn't worked out. They haven't sniffed the playoffs since. And part of the rationale combined off of that was there's this $10 million qualifying offer which got grandfathered in and doesn't really uh, work the same way anymore that would give him significant leverage to to get whatever he wants financially and contractually this summer. And so... Mm-hmm. I think that is a massive monkey wrench in all of this, right? Where based on the contract he's been playing on now, you mentioned the first couple of years, it looked like he wasn't going to find that form based on the way he's played last year. And this year he's been a significant value and, and underpaid. And I feel like he probably should be using this as a, as a pivot point or a launching pad for himself to get the biggest possible deal he can to set himself up for the rest of his life. And so with his value that high, I think it becomes a very tricky situation for the Sharks to navigate because he is such a fan favorite and he is such a good player. And the thought of trading him for a bunch of ifs, ifs or buts and futures and all that is not the most exciting thing. But you're staring down the barrel of not only a massive contract, but a 7, 13, and 4, 4 team this season that hasn't done much the past couple of years. And at that point, it's like, all right, well, what are we really trying to accomplish as an organization here? Right, right. So it's definitely a crossroads kind of moment for Mike Greer. You know, the Sharks had the same crossroad with with uh, Tomas Hurdle last year, but it yep. was a you know different regime, uh, and so they chose to uh, resign Hurdle, extend him the maximum. You know, a lot of people, myself included, you know, as much as I love Tomas Hurdle, I don't know if that was the best move for the organization as a whole. Even though I understand where they're coming from, you know, Tomas Hurdle, you know, his qualities extend not just on the ice but off the ice too, in terms of leadership, community all that kind of stuff. You know, he is the kind of guy that you want to be the face of your organization, you know, 24 seven. Right. Uh, but anyway, though, uh, same kind of crossroads with Timo. So, you know, we'll kind of see what, uh, what they do, but I have a question for you actually, mm-hmm. uh, um, you know, as somebody who watches, you know, an entire league, right. More closely than I do. Uh, I've always felt that, uh, that Timo deserves to be in the same kind of class with, we talk about Matthew Kachuk, right. Same kind of RFA situation. Right. Yep. And, when I wrote about that this past summer, I got a lot of pushback, even from Sharks fans, you know, talking about how, you know, Timo, you know, hasn't crossed 40 goals like Matthew Kachuk has. But, you know, we talk about just the overall player. I don't know. You tell me. I, I, I think that uh, I think that we're talking when we talk about Timo, we're talking about him with Matthew Kachuk and not with uh, the Brinkett. So that's just my opinion. Yeah, I would say closer to Kachuk than the Brinkett. I'd say maybe um, a step or half a step below um, just because I, I think the way Kachuk can create kind of below the goal line for for others in particular made him such an appealing piece for for the Panthers and and why they were willing to pay as much as they did for him. Um, I should also mention, I believe Kachuk is two years younger 
than than Timo. I, I think that kind of sounds about right. Maybe two, two and a half years. Oh, younger. okay, yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Okay, it's a big and, difference. Then. Okay. And and so yeah, I think in terms of in terms of the contract that he got, basically covers like up until his early thirties, which is great. That's exactly the type of deal that you want to be paying for. Whereas for Meyer, he's it's kicking in when he's twenty seven, right? So if it, if it goes seven, eight years, all of a sudden you're getting into some dicey territory on the back half of it, and I think that does need to be factored in, into the calculus. Um, but yeah, I, I think a step above the Brinkhead, and I I think. I mean, if he's made publicly available, and I don't think they've really engaged any of these talks necessarily yet, but man, the team is lining up, whether it's the Devils, the Kings, potentially the Hurricanes. I would say the Flames is like Timo Meyer is the perfect player for it. a lot of what ails them. Unfortunately, I'm not sure they have the the ability to facilitate a trade like that at this point, but there's going to be any number of teams with legitimate interest and very valuable assets that are going to be lining up if he's made available publicly like that. And so um, I, I think it'll be a very interesting trade market, but I think, I think he'll command quite a bit, especially if it comes with, with, you know, a, a deal in place to keep him wherever he's traded to for, for the next seven years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the 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 Kachuk thing came, you know, because they were part of that same uh, uh, RFA winger class from yes, uh, 2019, yep. right? Yeah. So uh, you know, a great class there. Liney was a part of that one too. Uh, but anyway, the yeah, I, I it's you know, I think with, with Timo too. I think what works uh, for him too is this year he he's quite underpaid at six million dollars. So he has a contract that can kind of fit with anybody. So as a rental this year, even if you look at him that way, he's quite valuable. And again, if you get like like you mentioned, sort of those those uh guarantees or the idea that he wants to stay with you long term and he is a guy that you want to build around if your team that decides that um then yeah i i i think his uh i, I mean i don't i i gotta think of i i gotta think harder about in terms of uh hmm. comparables for for a team Meyer trade but you know we're we're talking you know you know a uh, first round pick maybe two of them if you get that guarantee he'll stay uh you know and then maybe a good prospect i don't know oh, yeah yeah yeah, certainly. I, I would I would say definitely. And and man, it would be fun to see him on a team like the Devils, for example, especially with the way they're playing and, and they have the the assets to do a trade like that. Um, so that would be that would be really fun. I'm, I'm kind of curious for you. You mentioned this that you know they were at a similar crossroads last year with Tomas Hurdle and decided to give him sixty five million dollars over the next eight years, as opposed to you know I I would have loved to see them trade him, for example, before the Hampus Lindholm trade to to Boston, who desperately needed a second line center at the time and probably essentially could have gotten a very similar package, if not slightly better than what Anaheim wound up netting for him, which was a significant one. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, Mike Greer wasn't the person that made that decision. And it feels like he's kind of come in here with a relatively clean slate in terms of, you know, he's inherited a lot of contracts from the previous regime, but he's not responsible for them. And he doesn't necessarily not only has an emotional attachment to them, but doesn't necessarily need to need to kind of placate to them. Like he can, he can build this team the way he wants do you think that's going to factor in at all that that they already made that decision on hurdle? Because once you've committed yourself to a deal like that, now all of a sudden, if you're if you're keeping him, but you're trading Meyer, not that you you know it's a sunk cost in the sense that the contract's already in place, regardless of what you do with Meyer. But it seems like it's like a bit of a one step forward and two steps back, and then all all of a sudden you look around and you've got Tomas Hurdle and Eric Carlson, and then not really that much else. And I don't I don't know what what you're working with at that point. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right about you know if they if they you know they've obviously resigned her already if they trade uh, Meyer sort of that one step forward two steps back but there's a certain point though where the Sharks need to sort of cut it out in terms of yes. giving out long term contracts that aren't uh, aren't aren't paying off enough well it's it's not even that actually right because if you look at the Sharks long term contracts right now uh, you know Hurdles had a decent season he could be better you know Couture is still a good player you know maybe he's not quite at up to that value but he's still a very good player. Um, Eric Carlson is is obviously at the moment you know, fulfilling his value right now. Even the market of Vlasic, who you know much maligned over the last couple uh, couple of years, and I think fairly so. Uh, but he's returned to at least some value for his contract uh, this this season. Um, so it's not even the big contracts right now in a way that are sinking the Sharks. But you know this, they didn't build enough uh, below uh, under them to to kind of to to kind of keep keep the kind of keep them competitive or keep them you know in in the playoff hunt. I think that's part of the problem with the Sharks. But anyway, though, at some point though, yeah, you need to cut out, cut out giving these contracts because <laughs> um, 
you just you're not getting enough overall value. Even if you can't point to Carlson and say this is your fault why we're seven thirteen and four. You can't point to Katora or Hurdle uh, because individually they're 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 all having decentish seasons. Um, yeah. but just the overall, it's just not it's just not working. Yes. And so and so it's it's so it's just it's a it's a weird place. But Meyer is a little bit younger than Hurdle was last year, um, and Meyer is a pretty special player in in his own right too. And so I think I think yeah, it's going to be very very kind of telling uh, uh, what Greer does. It is interesting that um, you know from my understanding of contract negotiations between the Meyer and, and Hurdle camp. And granted, you know Hurdle was a UFA, so there was sort of more urgency. You had to get something done by the trade deadline or. Or, or, or you know, you risk losing hurdle for nothing. Yes. Whereas yeah. Meyer, you know, Meyer can still, you know, he's an RFA, and so you're not in such a rush with 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 the Meyer. Uh, but uh, there have, you know, the the as far as I understand it, Meyer's camp uh, spoken with uh, Meyer's agent Claude Lemieux. Meyer's camp is kind of, and they're fine with this. You know, the the Sharks are, I guess, in a point where they're deciding whether or not Meyer is a guy that they want to commit long-term too. So they haven't even extended, as far as I understand it, a contract offer uh, for, uh, for Timo Meyer at this point. And yeah. so it's not one of those things where, you know, last year with the Sharks and Hurdle, the Sharks made it very clear from, you know, any anytime you would ask the Sharks, be it when Doug Wilson, when he was around, or Joe Will, when Joe Will took over as interim GM, we want to keep Tomas Hurdle. And it's that message is not as loud and clear from the Sharks this time with Timo Meyer. Again, granted, uh, Meyer is an RFA, so they're not in such a such a rush. But yeah, so that is kind of an interesting kind of distinction. So you wonder if Mike if Mike Greer was a GM uh, last year, whether or not he would have re-upped uh, Tomas Hurdle. I don't know. But anyway, we'll see with uh, Timo again. It's an interesting crossroads uh, for the Sharks. Yeah. Yeah. I think you put it, you put it best at some point you got to cut it out, right? Like you gotta, you gotta start, you gotta start the the path. Cause we had a, I had a mailbag question a couple of weeks ago that was like, which organizations are the furthest away from being built into a Stanley cup champion. And it's like, I, I had the sharks. You had to have the sharks at the top of the list because yeah. they haven't even really started the rebuild and they're 31st in the league in point percentage. Like it's, it's kind of crazy to think about, but based on the, on the current roster they have and the financial commitments they already have in place for the next three, four years, even though those players are playing well or, or not necessarily huge liabilities financially, they're clearly not good enough to build this into a winning team. And they're still going to be in theory, depreciating assets as they get into their older, into their thirties over these next couple of years. And so until you actually start that process, it's tough to wrap your head around them being on the right track. And so at some point you have to make tough decisions and kind of pull the plug and start that process. And I guess the the silver lining or the or the potentially the the good thing working for them in their favor here is that Mike Greer is a UGM and he's stepping in, inheriting this stuff as opposed to being responsible for it. And so I think it's a lot easier for him to justify making those tough decisions. So um yeah, I'll be I'll be very fascinated to see how they handle it. I'm sure we're gonna have a lot of chances to discuss it. I'm looking forward to having you back on the show to do just that. Shang, before we get out of here, I'll let you plug some stuff. Where can people check you out and uh, and what have you been working on? Yeah, uh, just to find me at uh, San Jose Hockey Now. That's my website. I also appear on uh, uh, MEC Sharks, uh, MEC Sports Bay Area, the rights holder for the Sharks. And uh, find me at Twitter, uh, Shang underscore Pang. Uh, I don't know how long you'll find me on Twitter, the way things are going there. but <laughs> No, you'll be, you'll be there forever. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> All right, man. Well, this is a blast. I'm glad we got to do this. We'll check in with you soon. Thank you to the listeners for listening to the show. If you enjoyed what you heard, Go smash that five-star button as a review wherever you listen to the podcast. And we'll be back tomorrow with more here of the Hockey PDOcast on the Sportsnet Radio Network.